0: And this man came and introduced himself. It was David Picker of United Artists. And he said, I want Willie to make pictures for my company. I said, really, he said, what will it take? I said, put $2 million in a paper bag, give it to us, and go away, and we'll bring you a picture. And he said, you've got a deal.
1: We know that the cost of production of an episode of television in the last ten years has doubled, literally doubled. What do you think is the source of that cost doubling?
0: Listen, Gondorf, am I gonna learn to play the big con or not? You can't do it alone, you know. It takes a mob of guys like you and enough money to make them look good. Well, I know plenty of guys. It's not like playing winos in the street. You can't outrun I a never played for any. no winos. You gotta keep his con even after you take his money. He can't know you took him.
2: All right, people, let's go. Welcome to Episode 4 of Thousands of Tiny Tyrants, the Mostly Movies podcast. I'm your host, James Harker. If you'd like to contact me with comments or questions, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can email me using the contact form on the About page of my website, tinytyrantspodcast.com. Before we get started, I want to dedicate this episode of the show entitled Hollywood and the Big Con to the truly independent filmmakers, independent producers, and independent studios working outside of the guild and union-dominated Hollywood system. Anyone who has worked in film and television production knows how difficult it is to make an independent film. But as we watch the Hollywood behemoths struggle to remain relevant in the environment of escalating production costs those companies have so irresponsibly engendered, I believe it is independent creators and independent platforms, nascent and yet to come, that have the best shot at reinvigorating motion pictures.
0: To me, the great hope is that now these little eight millimeter video recorders and stuff are coming around. Some just people who normally wouldn't make movies are gonna be making them and you know suddenly one day some little fat girl in Ohio is gonna be the new Mozart, you know, and make a, a beautiful film with her little father's camera recorder and For once, the so-called professionalism about
1: movies will be destroyed forever.
2: Now that the WGA, SAG-AFTRA, and the AMPTP have holstered the prop guns they use to do real damage to working people, it's time for the producers that dominate each of those corrupt cartels to get back to work stuffing billions of dollars of private investor and entertainment company stockholder cash into their pockets and to occasionally make a watchable television show or movie. And if you're a stockholder in Disney or Netflix or Paramount Global, the last of which, according to the showbiz press, is in distress and possibly up for sale, or if you're considering investing your money in a Hollywood project, this Thousands of Tiny Tyrants episode is for you. Spoiler alert. The moral of the story is a slight twist on an old one. Caveat emptor. In this case, let the investor beware. Why? because the metaphorical paper bag of cash you heard about in the intro to this show and that United Artists handed to Woody Allen in 1970 has evolved to become an unlocked and unguarded shipping container filled with as much as half a billion dollars per project. And no one in Hollywood, and I mean no one, has meaningful control over how that money is spent or who will get it. Instead, Everyone working in Hollywood is trying to figure out how to get that money into their pockets and the pockets of their friends, family, and associates. And although the factors that led us to this place are both complex and complicated, the consequences are straightforward. The Hollywood production process is, from top to bottom, under the control of unionized grifters. Hollywood, circa 2024, is more than ever before, and as the title of this episode suggests, a sprawling and extraordinarily expensive confidence game. At the top of the show, you heard Charles H. Jaffe, who produced 40 Woody Allen films, talk about the genesis of Woody's relationship with United Artists, a company that would go on to finance and distribute nine of Woody's movies over as many years. And keep in mind that the $2 million United Artists handed over to the frugal and careful producer Charles Jaffe and his business partner Jack Rollins In a paper bag in 1970 to finance Bananas, Woody's comedy about Marxist revolution on a Caribbean island, is the equivalent of about $15 million, 2024 dollars. If it was made today, Bananas would qualify for low-budget status under the current International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, a.k.a. IATSE, union contract with the studios. That $15 million is about half of what Netflix spent on average for a single episode of Stranger Things in that show's fourth season. And if the Wall Street Journal's reporting is correct, the $15 million United Artists spent on Woody's Bananas would only pay for 30 minutes of an episode of Taylor Sheridan's Yellowstone prequel 2023, which, according to film reporter Eric Schwartzel, cost struggling Paramount Studios... $500,000 per minute of screen time. Yes, you heard that right. Paramount spent more than $8,300 for every second that images of Harrison Ford, Helen Mirren, and a lot of horses and cattle move across the small screen in Taylor Sheridan's drama about family hardships in Montana during the final stages of Western expansion and the preliminary stages of the Great Depression. Paramount spends a lot of money on Yellowstone and its universe of spin-offs. The first season of its prequel series, 1923, cost the studio $200 million to produce. Eric says that comes out to roughly $500,000 per minute.
1: I mean, it makes 1923 among the most expensive shows on TV or ever made. I mean, we're talking more expensive than the Game of Thrones spinoff, more expensive than HBO's video game adaptation, The Last of Us. There's really a a kind of a a voracious appetite behind the scenes, too.
2: It's little wonder, then, that as Variety reported on December 12th, 2023, Taylor Sheridan's financier, Paramount Global, is expected to lay off more than 1,000 corporate staffers in early 2024. Preliminary stages of the Great Depression, indeed. But don't hold your breath waiting for Paramount or any other studio to take a close look at how money is spent on their movie and television projects. Now, if you're interested in film history, you've probably taken note of several characteristics shared by two of the productions I just mentioned, Woody's Bananas and Sheridan's 1923, and what may be the most notorious and tragic cinematic boondoggle of all time. If you haven't already, Ask yourself now, what do United Artists Studio, out-of-control production costs, a highly prized and indulgent writer-director, a story about Western expansion, and filming locations in Montana call to mind? The answer? Michael Cimino's 1980 box office disaster, Heaven's Gate. Like Sheridan's 1923, Heaven's Gate was a period project that shot principally in Montana a movie that at times filmed on land owned by and leased from the writer-director, which it has been reported is also part of Taylor Sheridan's grift, a movie that employed lots of horses and cattle, and the movie that effectively destroyed United Artists. If you haven't already read Stephen Bach's 1985 book, Final Cut, Dreams and Disaster in the Making of Heaven's Gate, about that motion picture production disaster, I recommend that you pick up a copy. Bach was a senior executive at United Artists throughout the ordeal, and although not everyone agrees with his account and assessment of the Heaven's Gate catastrophe, Bach's tale is riveting, and he does make an effort to criticize his own missteps and poor judgment. The book was reissued in paperback in 1999 as Final Cut, Art, Money, and Ego in the Making of Heaven's Gate, the film that sank United Artists. Make sure you check it out. Anyway, Michael Cimino's breathtaking big-screen money pit, Heaven's Gate, much like Taylor Sheridan's Gilded, if far more successful, small-screen television show four decades later, was treated by Hollywood and the Hollywood press as an anomalous instance of unsupervised and unaccountable spending by a successful, self-indulgent, and newly-minted Hollywood power player. And now, as then... Hollywood's corporate executives, in performances primarily intended for studio and streamer stockholders and independent film financiers, shrewdly eschew oversight responsibility for this waste and mismanagement in what they cynically and disingenuously represent as the otherwise strictly managed arena of corporate entertainment finance. And however true that might have been for United Artists and Heaven's Gate in 1979, the reality circa 2024 is that Taylor Sheridan's profligate spending and rapaciousness are emblematic of the way virtually everyone in Hollywood, from the biggest name producer, actor, director, to the lowliest no name gaffer, key grip, or prop master, has been operating for decades.
0: Greed will be the thing that kills us all.
2: And all of this plunder. Abandonment of fiduciary responsibility and flipping of middle fingers at studio executives, stockholders, and financiers by producers like Sheridan, as well as by thousands of his fellow unionized managers and supervisors working on movies and in television is taking place day after day and night after night on Hollywood productions around the world. And this is all going on right under the noses of studio executives who are either too ignorant, too unimaginative, too indoctrinated or too frightened to bust up the Tinseltown Mafia confidence game. I can think of no better analog by which to examine the movie business syndicate than Hollywood's encomium to small time grifters who pull off a big con. I'm talking about Universal's 1973 theatrical release, The Sting, starring Robert Redford, Paul Newman, and Robert Shaw.
0: You're not going to stick around for your share? Nah. I'd only
2: blow it. The Sting was nominated for ten Academy Awards in 1974, winning seven, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Score for Marvin Hamlish's adaptation of Scott Joplin's compositions, including The Entertainer, which you heard at the start of this episode. The Sting is a masterpiece of the studio crime drama comedy genre and the perfect vehicle for two of Hollywood's most charming male stars at the time, Redford and Newman. The film cost only about 5.5 million dollars to make. That's the equivalent of 38 million dollars in 2024, and has earned roughly 156 million dollars to date. The Sting is the Great Depression era story of small-time Joliet, Illinois street grifter Johnny Hooker, played by Redford, who swindles a powerful New York mobster's bag man out of the equivalent of 220,000 2024 dollars using a street grift known as a wipe or a poke with the help of his mentor and accomplice, Luther Coleman, played by Robert Earl Jones, father of James Earl Jones, the original voice of Darth Vader. When the New York mob boss, Doyle Lonigan played by Robert Shaw, finds out about the heist, he takes out hit contracts on Hooker and Luther Coleman.
0: They're still looking for him. What did the put on it? He gave it to Riley and Cole. They staked out the other guy's place last night, but he never showed. They figure maybe he uh, skipped town. You want to keep after him? You see that fellow in the red sweater over there? His name's Danny McCoy. Works a few of the protection rackets for Canaro when he's waiting for something better to happen. Danny and I have known each other since we were six. Take a good look at that face, Floyd. Because if he ever finds out I can be beat by one lousy grifter, I'll have to kill him and every other hood who wants to muscle in on my Chicago operation. You follow? Yes, sir.
2: Hooker gets a tip about the contract on his life from a crooked Joliet cop played brilliantly by Charles Durning. Realizing that his friend Luther is also in danger, Hooker attempts to warn Coleman, but he's too late. Lonigan's hitmen murder Luther by defenestrating him from his upper-floor apartment onto the cold, hard alley below. Distraught, angry, and out to avenge Luther's murder, Hooker travels to Chicago, where he teams up with Luther's former associate, Henry Gondorf, a respected but washed-up conman played by Newman.
0: Great little countess, that, Billy. She runs a spiffy house up there, too. You, uh, planning to spend the rest of your life here? I could do a lot worse. Listen, Gondorf, am I gonna learn to play the big con or not? What's your hurry? I want to play for Lonigan. You know anything about the guy? Yeah, he croaked Luther. Anything else I gotta know? He runs a numbers racket on the south side. He owns a packing house, a few banks. Yeah, and half the politicians in New York and Chicago are fixing this world gonna cool him out if he blows on you. I'd get him anyway. Why? Because I don't know enough about killing to kill him. I can't do it alone, you know. Takes some mob of guys like you and enough money to make them look good. Oh, I know plenty of guys. It's not like playing winos in the street. You can't outrun I never Johnny. played for no winos. You gotta keep his con even after you take his money. He can't know you took him. You're scared of him. Right down to my socks, buster. You're talking about a guy who'd kill a grifter over a chunk of money wouldn't support him for two days.
2: In order to exact revenge for the killing of their friend, the young grifter and the experienced conman devise and execute a so-called Big Con in an attempt to swindle Lonigan out of a sum equal to $11 million in 2024. Because they are conmen, not killers, Hooker and Gondorf set out to humiliate Lonigan rather than murder him. From this moment onward, The Sting is a crystal clear reflection of the motion picture development, financing, and production processes the seasoned writer-director-producer conman Henry Gondorf and his passionate protege, actor-producer Johnny Hooker, conspire to separate the wealthy villainous financier Doyle Lonigan, whom they loathe, from his money. In my analogy, Lonigan is a stand-in for the movie studios, streamers, distributors, and independent investors whose money is coveted by Taylor Sheridan, Shonda Rhimes, David Simon, Matt Damon, Bradley Cooper and hundreds of other famous and lesser-known Hollywood producers so they can finance their projects. Just as Hooker and Gondorf revile Lonigan, Companies like Disney, Netflix, Paramount, and others who invest in motion picture projects are despised by the thousands of people whose careers are dependent on those investors, as we heard again and again throughout the months-long WJ and SAG strikes from virtually every writer, actor, union official, and significantly, Producer who spoke out against the studios and in support of the striking writers and performers. Anyway, Newman's character, Henry Gondorf, our AirSats movie producer, assembles a crew, what in the world of grifters is known as a con mob, and what in the movie business we call production, key creatives, and department heads. According to David W. Maurer, author in 1940 of the book The Big Con, the story of the confidence man, among the personnel comprising a con mob crew are the lugger, the inside man, the bookmaker, as well as a staff of ropers, shills, and handlers. Never to be outdone, the motion picture industry con mob has its own collection of colorful names for crew personnel, such as Gaffer, Lead Man, Key Grip, Best Boy, Line Producer, Boom Op, Captain, and Wrangler. As the sting develops, Gondorf and his con mob of key creatives and department heads set about brainstorming a scenario, essentially creating a script outline with which to lure Lonigan into their trap. They settle on a highly sophisticated con game known in the world of grifters as, quote, The Wire, unquote. And yes, The Wire con game in The Sting bears some similarity to David Simon's television series by that name, insofar as both Simon's cop show and The Sting rely on a form of wiretapping. To execute The Wire... Gondorf and his con mob assemble the performers, crew, and other materials needed to pull off their swindle, which in this case involves contriving a fake but convincing off-track horse-race betting location and private social club that is ostensibly run by Gondorf. Hooker's role, as what conmen call the roper or lugger, is to get what is essentially a script pitch meeting with Lonigan, at which Hooker will persuade the wealthy mobster that he, Lonigan will be helping Hooker to swindle betting club owner Gondorf, for whom Hooker works, out of a suitcase full of cash on a single horse race bet. Ultimately, Redford's script pitch to Robert Shaw's Lonigan succeeds, and Lonigan believes he is one of the con men, and the indispensable power-playing money man at that, when in reality, Lonigan is the Mark who will be fleeced. But Lonigan also doesn't realize, and won't realize even after the con game has wrapped, that everyone with whom he interacts inside and at times even outside Gondorf's social club is a performer acting out a role in the plot to con him, Lonigan, out of his money. While Gondorf baits the trap and Hooker pitches the project to Lonigan, Gondorf's production manager, Kid Twist, played to delightful perfection by the character actor Harold Gould, whose Kid Twist has more grace and courage than you're likely to encounter in a typical Hollywood production manager, Goes to work scouting locations, assembling the crew, contacting vendors, casting performers, constructing the set, ordering props, including prop guns and blood squibs, to deceive their mark, Doyle Lonigan. Kid Twist even installs a buzzer button inside the off track betting set that he'll use to call what are effectively rolls and cuts on the action and performances inside the social club moments before the mark, Lonigan, arrives on set. In the same way buzzers and bells are used in Hollywood studios to alert actors and crew moments before the first assistant director calls action. The only elements of motion picture production missing from Gondorf's scheme are film cameras, sound recordists, and union officials. And when the show finally reaches its shocking, improbable, but nevertheless satisfying conclusion, the producer, Henry Gondorf, calls a rap, and the whole crew works on breaking down the set. Everything about contriving Newman's fake betting club and the con mob that will bring it to life is, from beginning to end, an analog for movie and TV production. Now, Hollywood con mob analog aside, The Sting is a lot of fun to watch, has a twist ending, is shot almost entirely on studio sets and backlots, and to top it all off, there are also several stunning examples of the lost art of matte background painting that are used to represent the Chicago cityscape. I hope you'll check out the film. I should add too, Gondorf understands that persuading Lonigan he'll make a lot of money isn't enough to snare their prey, so Gondorf baits the trap with an elaborate scheme appealing to Lonigan's vanity and pride before Hooker ever asks Lonigan to bet a dime on their horse racing scam. And just as Gondorf exploits Lonigan's pride to separate him from his cash, it is in many cases pride and vainglory with which motion picture producers entice investors, large and small. To hand them millions with promises of relationships with celebrities and the chance that the investor will become, or can continue to be, a Hollywood player or powerful executive. This is precisely the dynamic freelance producers and showrunners and their network of unionized collaborators exploit in their dealings with the studios and other financiers. The studios believe they are in charge, that they, the studios, hold the power in the relationship. And the studio executives aren't wrong about that. They are just like Mobster Lonigan in control. But only until they agree to finance the project. Once the Hollywood con mob of freelance producers, directors, and showrunners get control of the movie and TV investors' money, the con game has succeeded, and the money begins to be divided among the producer, grifters, and their freelance associates. Because you see, over the 75 years since the studio system collapsed, Hollywood has evolved bit by bit toward a freelance production model, and that evolution is largely complete. This means that, in 2024, even movie producers are freelance workers who move from project to project, and this is important, from studio to studio. This in spite of the fact that it is those producers who are supposed to be every studio's and production's uber-supervisors, managers who, theoretically, anyway, have a fiduciary responsibility to whomever has financed a project. But in an industry that you will hear over and over again is all about relationships. Freelance producers' primary relationships are no longer with the studios who finance movie and television projects and in whose interests they are expected to control production costs. Not at all. In 2024, producers' primary relationships are with their thoroughly unionized freelance collaborators in whose interests producers lobby studios for the maximum amount of money obtainable, so that money could be distributed among hundreds of those producers' fellow freelance motion picture workers. Workers with whom they move from job to job and from studio to studio. But whereas the Sting's Doyle Lonigan cannot possibly know that the power and control he believes he has is a mere illusion and that he is being played, And whereas Lonigan cannot possibly know that everyone around him is a performer in an elaborate scheme to steal his money, Hollywood studio executives have no such excuse. The executives at Disney and Netflix and HBO are perfectly aware that they exercise virtually no control over the motion picture production process. Studio executives know that every manager, every supervisor, and nearly every producer to whom they've given carte blanche control of investors' money is a member of at least one labor union and who, even if they aren't in a union, have little or no incentive to control costs. Studio executives know that it is impossible in the current environment of freelance, itinerant, crews, and production personnel even to guess... At the true natures of the complex web of relationships among the thousands of writers, actors, directors, producers, assistant directors, cinematographers, production managers, post production supervisors, sound stage owners, gaffers, prop masters, key grips, equipment vendors, union officials, and the endless conflicts of interest and kickback schemes in which many of these thoroughly unionized freelancers cooperate on movie after movie and television series after television series. Often working for months, spending Netflix money, and then for months after that, spending the money of Netflix competitors, Disney or HBO or Paramount. If we know that the cost
1: of production of an episode of television in the last 10 years has doubled, literally doubled. And during that same period, um, writers are making 24% less in that exact same space. But as you look at this, what do you think is the source of that cost doubling over
2: the course of 10 years. Um, yes, Billy Ray, I've got some pretty good ideas why the cost of film production is doubled. Now, to be fair, I'd like to point out two differences, one obvious, the other less so, between the Hollywood production con and the sting. First, unlike Robert Shaw's Lonigan, who ends up with nothing but confusion and egg on his face after Gondorf and his crew take his money, motion picture financiers do get a movie or TV show for their investment. In most cases, the project may not be worth what they paid for it, but 99% of the time the content will be delivered. Second, in The Sting, Lonigan was duped into believing he was part of the con and therefore had no reason to suspect that he was surrounded by fraudsters and performers. But it isn't the case that studio executives don't realize everyone working on a production is part of Hollywood's big con. It's just that studio executives are, with few exceptions, no longer filmmakers. And for this reason, they have neither the knowledge nor the authority to question and analyze in any detailed way how stockholders' and investors' money is being spent. And those few studio execs who actually did come up through the motion picture production ranks have themselves been participating in the Hollywood con game for years and wouldn't dream of trying to dismantle the fraud especially since they're likely to be part of a movie or TV con mod themselves at some point in the future. You see, Hollywood studios are no longer run by the likes of David O. Selznick, who in episode two of this show, The Limits of Cinematic Immunity, you heard Joan Didion compared to a military general for whom film production was akin to going to war. For better or for worse, there just aren't any David O. Selznicks or Louis B. Mayers in Hollywood anymore. 21st century studio executives wouldn't dare risk their positions, by calling out or stepping into the Hollywood con game minefield. What's the point, after all, when the industry has evolved to become an elaborate quarter trillion dollars per year grift in which the manufacture of derivative, mostly forgettable motion picture widgets is secondary to filmmakers, well, paramount objective, which is separating investors from their money. Anyway, even before a single set has been built or location scouted and long before even one second of the story has been shot, so-called producers, most of whom aren't producers at all, begin staking their claims to the shipping containers full of cash the studios or private investors have ponied up for these projects. It's worth taking a minute to listen to Directors Guild member, Writers Guild member, and producer Billy Ray disingenuously lament the Hollywood producer grift with Jennifer Fox who has produced and executive produced movie starring George Clooney, Jake Gyllenhaal and Matt Damon. Now, I've slightly edited the exchange between Ray and Fox in the interest of time, but the substance of their conversation remains intact.
1: And I think it all funnels into this idea that everybody thinks they're a producer and there are now more and more people reaching into that pot. And will this will producing be a viable, survivable job?
0: It's absolutely true that it's become harder and harder in the 20 years that I've been doing it. There used to be um, a large number of term deals at studios or studio where producers had a home.
1: Let's try this as a scenario. You find a book that you love, and you option it, and you go out and you get a writer. So on that level, you are clearly functioning as a producer. So you guys make a dream list of directors and you go after a director and the director says, yeah, I love this script. I'm in, um, guess what? I'm a producer. And you say, okay. And the director says, Oh, and I have a producing partner and she's a producer too. So you develop it a little bit more and you go and you set it up at a studio with this director who's attached. Okay. And the studio says, here's our dream actress. And you go get that actress and she says, I love this. I'm in, I'm a producer. And I have a producing partner and she's also a producer. So now there are five producers on this, but there's only the one producing pot. It's not like the producing pot keeps getting bigger, right? Yes. And by the way, somewhere along the line, the the, the manager of the writer could say, well, I'm a producer. How do you make a living off of one sixth of the producing pot.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and it's an enormous problem and it is a very collaborative process and, and we have highly, highly skilled craftspeople in all departments, but someone needs to be thinking about what's best for this as a whole and in a way that as diplomatically as possible, making peace between all of these various interests.
2: What producer Jennifer Fox does not say, what she, in fact, cannot say without jeopardizing her continued success, is that Hollywood's motion picture con game has spun so far out of control, especially now that the involvement of celebrity talent is indispensable to securing studio funding, the con game is so out of control that even producers like Jennifer Fox, the Henry Gondorfs of these big cons, cannot be certain they'll get to take home part of the studio money score. Because you see, there are now far too many palms to be greased. And producers such as Jennifer Fox have inherited and perpetuated a production culture in which supervisory authority, personnel decision-making, and control of how money is spent have been delegated to union and guild members, operating not in the interests of the project and the project's financiers, but in their own interests. And as we heard over and over again during the WGA and SAG strikes last year, guild and union members, Many of them, who are themselves multimillionaires, believe that the studios and their stockholders are capable of simply printing cash that can be stuffed into a paper bag or onto pallets that will be shipped without end to New York, Los Angeles, Georgia, or to Taylor Sheridan's ranch in Montana. How bad has it gotten? Hilariously bad, it seems. Hollywood producers who aren't members of one or more of Hollywood's guilds or unions now have so little control over the distribution of money and production costs that they can't even be sure they'll get a share of that money for themselves. In fact, the con mob is now so out of control that Hollywood producers are attempting, in spite of laws barring them from doing so, laws that, at the very least, deny them National Labor Relations Board protection if they do, Hollywood producers are attempting to form their own labor union. And they're calling their quixotic and paradoxical organization, quote, the Producers Union, unquote. I'd like to recommend a slogan for their fledgling organization, the Producers Union, because if you can't beat them, join them. And just as Taylor Sheridan is a Writers Guild of America showrunner and a Directors Guild of America member to whom Paramount Plus was paying union wages, a union pension, and union health care, not to mention, what is surely millions of additional dollars in talent-agent-negotiated fees, while at the same time Sheridan was leasing to himself his own land and livestock in exchange for the cash Paramount entrusted to him. Producers throughout the motion picture industry, as well as actors, cinematographers, gaffers, key grips, construction coordinators, and prop masters are vendors, leasing and selling every imaginable kind of equipment to their production company employers while at the same time those employers, using studio money, are also paying most of those same vendors' union wages, union pensions, and union health benefits. And even in cases when those crew member supervisors and department heads aren't directly leasing or selling equipment or goods of some kind to the production companies, Those supervisors, production managers, and department heads are often directing production company business to vendors who are members of their own families or to vendors who pay kickbacks to those production managers and department heads to express their gratitude. Hollywood has even found a way to work the consequences of this pilfering and profligacy into its marketing campaigns by making out-of-control spending a selling point. You can't read a press report about a Hollywood movie these days without at least one reference to its blockbuster budget or something to that effect. It's all about spending money. The more, the better. And all the while, politicians across the country and around the world, as well as Wall Street institutional and private investors, remain mesmerized by the Hollywood financing confidence game. In fact, the sums of money required to feed Hollywood's above-the-line and below-the-line army of all but universally unionized mercenaries have grown so great that government funding both in the United States and abroad is required to keep the confidence game going. In 2021, the state of Georgia alone put $1.2 billion of taxpayer money into Hollywood producers and crews' pockets. That same year, Taxpayers in four other states, Louisiana, New Mexico, New York, and California, set aside an additional $1.4 billion for motion picture production, bringing the total taxpayers set aside for Hollywood's labor force in 2021 from just five states to more than $2.5 billion. And in 2023, the state of New York increased the cap on its annual financial incentives for Hollywood by more than 80 percent, from $420 million to nearly three quarters of a billion dollars. The state
1: budget passed by lawmakers this week in Albany, there are increased tax credits for the film industry.
0: Oh, my God. The film tax credit will increase dramatically from $420 million a year to $700 million to encourage production in New York State. And now there's an additional 10% bump on not just um, below-the-line labor, but there's also on the expenses, and they got rid of the cap. So it's going to allow us to compete with other states like Georgia and New Jersey, who we've been losing films to. If you want to read about the new tax incentives included in the budget, I'm putting a
2: link for you in this story on WGRZ.com. In Buffalo, Kelly Dudzik, Channel 2 News. And although it's easy to understand why enormous payouts that cut so deeply into the earnings of independent producers are going to celebrity producers who are WGA, DGA, and SAG members, as well as to those power brokers' friends and associates, It is also important to know that below-the-line supervisors, department heads such as gaffers, key grips, prop masters, construction coordinators, and many others who are all members of the IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, my former union of 23 years, also take big pieces of production budgets in the form of extra contractual payments. And the payments I'm talking about have nothing to do with those department heads' union contracts. Not at all although those payments do have something to do with ensuring labor peace. The extra contractual payments I'm talking about are so-called, quote, kit rentals, unquote. Union department heads and even some of their preferred subordinates are demanding increasingly large extra contractual equipment rental payments from producers in exchange for the implicit guarantee that those IATSE department heads and their subordinates will be playing on the producer's team throughout the project. Listen to John R. Ford, the former president of one of IATSE's wealthiest locals, Local 52 in New York City, talk about how the so-called kit rentals demanded by IATSE supervisors from producers actually depress the earnings of non-supervisor rank-and-file IATSE members.
0: We're at full employment. Why does anybody work scale? Because the boss has got to get their kit rentals. The employer says, okay, well, you're getting 5000 a week for your kit. We'll give everybody 5 bucks over scale. You're only getting 2000 for your kit. That's coming out of your kit rental. That's it. Well, forget it. We'll just work for scale. I mean, those guys get sweetness here and there. You know, uh, some gear rentals are, are drifting down a little bit. But there's no reason for anybody to be working for scale now. None. That's the reason. Because it's it's the same thing. They wanna they don't wanna make waves. They're getting their monstrous kit rentals, right? Some guys are making god knows how much. You know, well into the well into the six figures, just renting right gear. They're not gonna fight for guys to get over scale.
2: What IOTC President John Ford is talking about is six-figure extra contractual payments from producers and production managers to supervisors, such as key grips and prop masters, supervisors who are, in violation of federal laws, also IOTC members. And these payments, although dwarfed by the talent agent negotiated fees paid to WGA, DGA, and SAG members, represent in aggregate millions of dollars in no-bid contract costs to movie and television productions. Does anyone wonder that government handouts to Hollywood are now part of the confidence game? I'll dig into the IATSE kit rental grift in more detail in a future episode, especially because those extra contractual payments to IATSE department heads and their associates are, as in years past, likely to undermine efforts by rank-and-file workers represented by IATSE To improve their compensation and working conditions during IATSE's contract negotiations with the studios later this year, it's worth repeating the comments we heard on the subject of motion picture financing. Also in episode two of this podcast, the limits of cinematic immunity. Comments from executive producer and Writers Guild of America member Rob Long. As far as producer Rob Long is concerned, anyone who invests in movies and television is a fool.
1: Um, Investing in an entertainment business is uh a Fool's errand. It's foolish. People do it because they're uh, incredibly arrogant about how smart they are or they want to hang
2: out with movie stars. That's the only reason. There's no, there's no economic or business justification for that. When someone tells you who they are, you should listen to them. And when someone tells you what they think of you, you should listen even more closely. Rob Long's undeniable honesty about what filmmakers think of the companies, investors, and people who make their careers in entertainment possible The companies and investors who are, to use the grifter's term, the marks in Hollywood's financing con game is only a slight inversion of the old Groucho Marx bit Woody Allen used in 1977 at the opening of Annie Hall.
1: The the other important joke for me is one that's uh, usually attributed to Groucho Marx, but I think it appears originally in Freud's wit and its relation to the unconscious. And it goes like this, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I would never want to belong to any club that would have someone like me for a member.
2: As far as Rob Long, Taylor Sheridan, and Hollywood's other writer, director, producers, and showrunners are concerned, if you're idiotic enough to pay the Hollywood Grifters Club initiation fee, as well as make the Grifters Club dues payments for your employees, they'll happily give you the benefits of Grifters Club membership, good and hard.
0: Okay, guys, let's take this place apart fast. You can pick up your splits from Eddie and Boudreaux tonight.
2: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Thousands of Tiny Tyrants. If you'd like to contact me with comments or questions, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can email me using the contact form on the About page of our website, tinytyrantspodcast.com. But until we meet again, may you, good people of conscience, keep the thousands of tiny tyrants at bay.